Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast World Cup Daily. Day 19 of World Cup 2018 is done. Brian Strauss and I will be talking about that as part of our podcast coming to you daily from Russia through July 16th. Just a small request, it would be a huge help if you subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. It helps people find us. In this episode, I'm also joined by Ed Malian, the sports editor of The Independent in the UK, about England-Colombia, and since he has worked in Argentina and Spain, his thoughts on those two countries' World Cup exits. Onward! Let's bring in Brian Strauss from his Moscow lair. I am once again at the Fox studio. Brian, how are you, man? I've been in my lair all day. <laughs> all day. Wearing uh, the same wearing the same shirt I slept in. Oh, great, man. You can do laundry, you know. I well, I I had some laundry done, but and now, you know what? When I had the I had the laundry done, I sent it out to have it done cuz I'm I'm living that life. And they returned it with each individual article of clothing like vacuum sealed in yeah. a plastic bag. Each each shirt and each short separately vacuum sealed. I would have been fine just in a big bucket. Like a cardboard box. Um well, uh they do good work here. Uh they do. You know, lots to talk about tonight. For me the the single best half of the tournament uh, between uh, Belgium and Japan, three-two Belgium. Better than Argentina, France. Uh, yeah. Uh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Right. I, I'm certainly okay. willing to hear your argument on the other side. No, no, I, no. I'm good with it. Go, uh, go for it. I just felt like it wasn't just that Japan went up two nothing in the second half on Belgium. It was that the two Japanese goals were so well taken and just electrifying and stunning and reminded me once again, not to assume anything heading into any game at this world cup, but the way Belgium responded was remarkable. And the changes that Martinez made were really smart. Yeah, uh, both, both sub scored. Yeah. You know, Fellaini comes on and, clearly takes advantage of his of his height advantage over the Japanese on his goal. Chadley scores the game winner after coming on as a sub for Carrasco. Um, and we got a, a chance to see what Belgium might really be about and what might be different about this Belgium team compared to previous Belgium teams, which is a real we're not going to fold mentality in the face of a tremendous challenge. And a lot of teams, I think, wouldn't have responded very well. We, we saw Spain not respond well. We saw Argentina not respond well in this tournament. And Japan was terrific. And they just conceded three. And, and here is Belgium advancing to a quarterfinal against Brazil. The, uh, the winning goal, I, I had a deja vu sort of, I don't know, sensation <laughs> as soon as... Courtois sort of grabbed the ball and looked up. I saw Timmy Howard against Algeria. Yeah. It was the same thing. It was the smile. I mean, obviously, the throws to different places, but something about the throw, something about De Bruyne on the run, landing on the run. I, I, I just, I knew that was going in, you know, like just the way, the way Japan was slow to react um, to that counter and the kind of space uh, that De Bruyne had in front of him and the, 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 the commitment that he had to impose himself on that space and take it 
you know, um, I knew that was a goal. Like you just like it at midfield, this is a goal. Um, and then, uh, but Lukaku's dummy was pretty sweet too. Obviously that was the not analogous to Landon's cause with Landon's the ball kind of popped out, but I still had that same feeling that I did that day in Pretoria watching that play unfold. Um, it was a, uh, yeah, it was a wonderful finish. And, and the fact that it was essentially the last kick of the game too, um, was just super dramatic. I, I still, maybe I'm biased against the big teams or for the big teams. Sorry. I, I I'm still going to carry the memory of that, uh, second half between France and Argentina, I think with me, a, a bit longer and the, you know, the passing of the torch from Messi to Mbappe. But, um, today was pretty awesome too. Yeah, I, I just thought it was fantastic. I mean, the record's going to show that Romelu Lukaku uh, did not score in this game and missed <laughs> multiple chances. A couple of headers, yeah. Where you were like, how did he miss that? And yet that dummy at speed at that moment of the game in that situation, that's crazy. Yeah, just crazy. It's just the level of the level of mental because at that point of the game, you're tired too, right? You're mentally fatigued and you're, and maybe you're frustrated because you haven't scored when you should have. And to have sort of the, the, the presence of mind and the soccer smarts uh, to make that play there. And obviously the confidence uh, that Chadley's going to get there. Very, very, very impressive. So overall, they deserve to win, I think, even though Japan made them, made them work for every inch of it. And I agree, that was a, a, a statement that, that Belgium showed that they can take a punch in the mouth um, and not not fall apart. You know, there was there wasn't there wasn't infighting. There wasn't doubt. Well, if there was, we didn't see it or hear it. Um, and obviously, a much 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 tougher test um, coming up. Um, but uh, yeah, the side of the bracket shaping up to be everything we uh, we hoped and feared it would be. I mean, it's it's uh, four four teams that can win the whole thing um, in two quarterfinals. Yeah, um, and the more I think about it, you can imagine if you put yourself in Lukaku's shoes in his mind how badly he wanted to score a goal in that situation after the misses he had had. And he would have been a goat, a bad kind of goat, in this game had Belgium gone home for all the chances that he missed, and yet he still was willing to give up the opportunity for a better opportunity by his teammate. Yeah, so, yeah just a, a play of incredible uh, mental, mental fortitude and fitness for him to make there. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about Brazil, Mexico. Brazil 2, Mexico 0. Mexico goes out for the 7th straight World Cup in the round That's of 16. That's amazing. I'm just uh, incredible. And, I mean, it's interesting because Mexico started this game pretty well, I thought, mm-hmm. and actually had the advantage for, what, the first 30 minutes of the first half? Um, certainly seemed that way. And they just didn't have enough quality in the final third in the way that Brazil ended up having through mainly Willian and Neymar in this game. It was, it, it reminded me of their game against, against Germany. And, and, and after, after that game, there was sort of the, I don't know, like the consensus that look, you know, we're not going to nitpick Mexico for beating the world champions in their world cup opener, but there were several moments in that game. Mexico was so devastating on the counter. Germany was so clueless in how to, in how to blunt it that Mexico could have easily had two or three more goals. And because of some, I don't know, uh, just just poor decisions, nerves, you know, a heavy touch, the precision that they, that they lacked in that game against Germany um, meant, meant, this, meant the score was much tighter than maybe it should have been. 
Um, and today it, it killed him. Today it was some of the same kind of stuff. And uh, just kind of scratching your head, like, how could they not get a better chance off this? Um, and, then, and then, you know, Brazil grows into the game. Um, Chicharito clearly is struggling. Um, Neymar, uh, the, the, to start and finish that first goal was just glorious. I mean, the way he pulled Mexico up. But we talked the other day about making a defense move sideline to sideline. Oh, my God. Like, the entire Mexican, you know, back six was pulled one way and then sent the other by that heel pass to Willian. And that was just a, a gorgeous, gorgeous play. And and then the doubt creeps in, right? And and uh, that was that was it. That was that was the game, I think, right there. Yeah, um, I know Mexico fans will be frustrated at going out at this stage once again. Um, you know, I, I just go back. I think the the game that's going to be remembered most is the Sweden game. Um, all you need is a tie, and you win the group, and you get Switzerland and an easier side of the bracket and the potential to go very very deep in the tournament and instead <laughs> you get brazil um and i was a little disappointed in juan carlos osorio who i think overall has done a pretty good job with the mexican team and in my opinion should be a candidate for the u.s job um I was disappointed that after the game, all he wanted to talk about was referees when he probably should have just said, look, Brazil was better than us today when it mattered. Um, what do we think about Neymar? Well, I mean, he was good today. Um, yes, he's embellishing quite a bit. And the, you know, it's possible to say both that I think Miguel Layun knew exactly what he was doing when he stepped on him, because I think that is the case. But it's also possible to say that Neymar made a meal of that in a comical way, actually, that will probably survive on the Internet for a very long time. Oh, I, I, they're already I was uh, at the game. I, what game was I at yesterday? Oh, yeah, Russia-Spain. <laughs> at the Russia-Spain game, we were watching some of the videos that people have already been making of, like, you know, Neymar rolling down the side of a mountain and starting an avalanche and, you know, that kind of stuff. People are very good. I don't know how, I don't know how you make those those. Those, fan, those fancy moving pictures, but those are pretty awesome. Um, I really wish that I could, I, I might, the timing on, that when I spent that day with Neymar in Los Angeles, <laughs> the timing of that in hindsight was so, so crappy because it was before he got PSG in his, in his brain, you know? It, it, wow. Back then, he was sort of, you know, he was still part of this wonderful uh, attack trio at Barcelona that was, you know, team first and you know, not worried about self-aggrandizement, the spotlight and the, and the Ballon d'Or and all that shit. Um, and, then, and then everything sort of changed for Neymar. And then he goes to PSG because he wants it to be his team and he wants to be the man. He, you know, makes, makes the coach cut his birthday cake and now he's rolling around flailing about like he's on fire. And it just seems like a completely different dude now than he was, you know, a year and a half ago. And I kind of want to interview this Neymar more, you know, and say, what the hell's going on with you, man? I find it hilarious, actually, that Neymar was part of this three-man front line at Barcelona with Lionel Messi and Luis Suarez that was very effective, but he wanted to go someplace where he'd be the man, and he went to a place that has Kylian Mbappe and Enzo Cavani. Yeah, what a World Cup PSG's having. Yeah, holy crap. Anyway, like, none of this stuff, like, like none of this stuff had happened yet, right? When I interviewed Neymar, like, he hadn't done any of this shit yet, so... So uh, we couldn't talk about it because it didn't exist. Right. And, and now, and he was going on and on about, he's a big NBA fan, and he was going on and on about the Warriors, right? And, uh -huh. and, and, and Kevin Durant going to the Warriors and it not being about, you know, it being about, 
you know, people, people taking pay cuts for the good of the team and, and blending all this talent and all this personality. And, and I'm like, dude, like, stop rolling around. Stop. <laughs> The, the only argument, the only argument for the for the for the flailing is, you know, if he's thinking in his head, this is going to get VAR on the case, right? I mean, maybe that's you, you know now only now are you not only are the theatrics not only for the referee, but the theatrics are maybe for the guy in the booth, um, who's probably Geiger. Um, <laughs> Geiger's been assigned every game. Is the everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised he's not like working the front desk of my hotel. The guy's everywhere. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and so maybe you're doing, maybe, maybe that's one of the, 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 the unintended consequences of, do we, should we say VAR or VAR? What do I say? Good question. I have uh, toggled back and forth throughout this tournament between VAR and VAR. What are they saying on the Fox? On the, what are the professional TV types saying? The professionals as opposed to us amateurs? Yeah, uh, well, we're not, neither of us are full-time <laughs> TV dudes. You're a part-time TV dude, I, I'm a no-time TV dude. I have heard both. I actually okay. tend to prefer efficiency, and I would prefer one syllable over three. Okay. All right. So then this is perhaps one of the unintended consequences of VAR is that <laughs> there's going to be more like just dumbass stupidity and, 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 you know, overreaction. But I would argue that if you know VAR is there, you shouldn't need to do as much of that crap because they're reviewing it. And I would also argue, if you remember that play in the box uh, against Costa Rica late in the game where Neymar totally embellished what when there yeah, yeah. was a little bit of contact and just a little, little arm to the chest and right and totally like flings, flings himself onto the floor and Catapulted. and i actually am half convinced that if he had just sort of fallen he might have gotten the penalty but would we have seen the lions i don't it wasn't even really a stamp right it was kind of like he just kind of like casually pressed his name <laughs> you know like would we have even seen that if if Neymar had started like I don't know like like crabbing around like he was on a hot stove you know I, I don't know I, I'm I'm I don't mean to be making excuses for him because right because he was brilliant today yeah I mean the, the the I mean like again the orchestration on the first goal and then obviously he continues the run around which is which is really really smart and makes the finish and then you know the the second goal just the explosiveness and 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 to to pull away and yeah he's probably shooting on that but whatever I mean he still created it. Um, he was really, really good. Uh, but he also is going to clearly do everything he can possibly do to to get in everybody's heads, to get under everybody's skin. He's just going to play the heel. He's going to be the guy who, who you know, is just kind of always in your face and kind of obnoxious and he's kind of trash talky. And I guess that's just going to be the guy he is now. And I'm kind of bummed that, like I said, that that wasn't that guy wasn't as pronounced uh, when we sat down with him and had him play Chariots of Fire on the piano, uh, whenever the hell that was, feels like five years ago. I would, I want to, I want to throw out a couple of ideas here. One, I hope somebody on the internet puts the whole writhing post Lyune stamp uh, action by Neymar in something like The Exorcist, where you know, like Linda Blair's head was turning around 360 <laughs> right. degrees, because it was that kind of a like a, green projectile vomiting. Yeah, scenes. because I mean, yeah. like it was that type of uh, spirits have entered him moment. Uh, and then also, apropos of nothing, I, I thought of this the other night and forgot to mention it on uh, Pavard, the French guy's goal. I am yeah. not, I'm not going to call him Inspector Pavard, just because I think that. <laughs> 
he's got a great name to be called Inspector Pavard. I just it's thought a I'd very throw that good out French there. name. Yes. Uh, so I got uh, I got Columbia, England tomorrow. Um, so you know I'm starting to see some. Like maybe the, maybe English fans and writers are being ironic when they are when they as they watch favorites drop like flies and they start to you can sense like genuine optimism creeping in and some some footballs coming home references and I'm wondering what are you you're still joking right you're, tell me you're still joking um, but uh, but I will be at I will be at Columbia England um, obviously hoping that Hamas is able to go um if something has been announced regarding that i missed it um because i didn't put on clothes today and um i've been trying to figure out for those listeners who want to get behind the world cup curtain a bit um my my reservation at my moscow hotel ends after the round of 16 and i kind of neglected to make another one after that so i'm trying to figure out uh what i'm going to do next um in terms of uh, where I'll be covering the rest of the tournament. So that's what I've been up to. So if there's anyone out there in Moscow, or for that matter, any other Russian city that wants to take Brian in on your couch or floor, please feel free. If, you have a, if you've got extra space in your gulag, please, <laughs> you know where to find me. <laughs> All right, man. Good talking to you. Let's do it again tomorrow. Talk to you then. Big thanks to Brian Strauss. Next up is my interview with Ed Malian. Let's bring our interview guest for today. It's Ed Malian. He is the sports editor of The Independent in England. And it's one of those situations where you feel like you know somebody, even though you've never met them in person, uh, thanks to social media. Uh, got to know Ed, no in quotes, I guess, over uh, quite a bit of time. But it's great to meet you in person, finally. Well, thank you very much for inviting me on. Uh, and also, uh, thank you for lunch. Yeah, uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, and... Let's talk about the World Cup. There's a lot of different things. I want to talk about England. You're from England, but not just about that because you have lived in Spain. You lived in South America, in Argentina. Um, but let's start with England. Okay. Uh, England, Colombia. Um, interesting game. Seems like an opportunity now for England to potentially go really deep in this tournament. Yeah, I mean, if, if, you've, uh, if you follow any English people on social media, you may be aware that it, it is coming home, uh, <laughs> as, as they're keen to, keen to remind you. I think uh, this England team uh, has recaptured the imagination of, of the country a bit because they're quite likable. Mm -hmm. And I think we've had more talented teams in previous tournaments, but nowhere near as, as, as likable or as, as easy to root for mm -hmm. as this team. Um, Gareth Southgate kind of, you know, he has the feel of, you know, he was the backup guy. He was—he wasn't the guy they wanted. They—they they yeah. hired Sam Allardyce, who, who was then ousted um, after a, uh, what you could call an investigation by a newspaper, <laughs> uh, I guess. And you know, Southgate wasn't the guy. He—he he, but in the end, he was a safe pair of hands that they went with uh, after a bit of a crisis. He's brought in a lot of the young players he worked with uh, as under twenty-one coach. Um, he's found a style of play that I think this is his, his greatest thing. Is he found a style of play that. Uh, will work against the bad teams and the good teams. Hmm. And that's what the World Cup's about because you're going to have games against the Tunisias and you're going to have games against the Belgians. Right. And you're going to have games, hopefully, against the Brazils You know, at some point. Uh, and I think Southgate has caught the balance just right. I think because of his experiences as a player, like he's had some tough tournament experiences. He missed the penalty that meant England lost the semi-final of Euro 96. Uh, he went to World Cup 2002 and didn't play a minute. 
And all of these are fed into his learning experience. And I think England are coming out the other end stronger because of he's a very rounded guy with a lot of experiences that are giving England a better chance to succeed. And then if they get a bit of luck along the way with an easier draw, then, uh, you know, who's to say it isn't coming home? Yeah, I mean, Spain was viewed as the powerhouse on that side of the bracket, the weaker side. Spain is out. Uh, still, Colombia is going to be a difficult opponent. The big question going in for a lot of folks is, is James Rodriguez healthy? I, I, fear, he's, I fear he's not. Um, and I, I say I fear because I think everyone would want him to be on the field if possible. Um, with James playing, England versus Colombia is a 50-50 game for me, and it's a really good, interesting game of football. I, I love the development of this Colombia team. I got to cover a few of their games uh, at the 2014 World Cup. Uh, I was in Belo Horizonte for their first game uh, at World Cup since 1998, and about 100,000 Colombians drove across because it was it was election weekend in Colombia. And on election weekend, that you're not allowed to sell alcohol. Huh. So everyone was like, screw that. I'm driving to Brazil. <laughs> I'm going to watch this game. I'm going to watch Colombia in the World Cup again. And it was, it was the streets were yellow with, with people. It was just in, an incredible uh, atmosphere against Greece that day. And, and they kind of captured my heart a little bit. Mm-hmm. I, I, I always enjoy watching South American football and love those nations. Um, but they, you know, they've got a great coach in Jose Peckerman, who's a wily old guy, uh, a bit conservative. Mm-hmm. But I think that is good because it, it reigns in their natural instinct to be just wild. Yeah. Um, James was the revelation of the last World Cup. We've had Juan Fernando Quintero, who has been kind of the revelation of this World Cup yeah. uh, for them. Uh, great story. I remember seeing him in 2011, and he looked like he was going to be the next big thing. And his career really went off the rails, and two years ago, he nearly retired. And then this has been his redemption. You know, the sky's the limit for someone of his talent, but he just needs to to find the right balance. And with him and James in the team, fully fit, Colombia are more than a match for England. I think James won't be. I think he'll be visibly not ready to play a game of this quality. And that's why I'm not being a homer. I just think England will have enough. Okay. Now, what is your story of living in South America? So I uh, I was doing uh, French and Spanish at university. I've always had an interest in languages and, and traveling and stuff. I ended up in Argentina coaching the national cricket team, um, which is a, a peculiar thing, especially for you guys. Because uh, <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, cricket, obviously not a, a huge thing in America, but, uh, and it's not a huge thing in Argentina either, but you've got to remember, like, um, there is a, a huge, you've been to Buenos Aires yourself, yeah. you know Buenos Aires as well. And uh, what's the saying about uh, people from Buenos Aires are, they're like, it's French people who sound like Italians, who speak yeah. Spanish and want to be English. <laughs> and there is that, that element that, they, despite the, the things that you'd expect when I moved there, I thought it could be tough to be English there because of the Falklands and all these things. They're Anglophiles. They're mm-hmm. big Anglophiles. Um, there's one brand that all the kids were wearing called Kevingston, which uh, you know is an, kind of sounds like an English word. And they were showing off to me like, "Oh, do you like this shirt? Do you like this Kevingston shirt? Uh, do you have this in London?" I was like, "No, I've never seen it before. <laughs> like, it's a completely Argentine brand, but by giving it an English name, it lends it some some cachet." So uh, th- there is kind of a, a part of Argentine society that plays cricket, um, especially in the bilingual schools and I just went out there for a year was coaching cricket which is like the easiest job in the world obviously just throwing a ball around in the sun um, and if you like football and you go and live in Argentina you're going to go and watch a lot of football yeah. and I was going every weekend I was going to different teams going to Racing to River to Boca to Huracan to San Lorenzo nice. and it's impossible not to fall in love with it you know I think you've seen here that the Argentine fans have been the greatest again and in Brazil they were the soundtrack of the entire tournament uh, with Decime Que Se Siente you know that song was ringing in my ears for years afterwards <laughs> um, and 
yeah, it just I just fell in love. And, and following South American football is, is an engrossing thing because the Copa Libertadores is is just so entertaining. It's wild. Yeah. It's again, it, it's what we find with international football. It's not the highest quality in the world. That's the Champions League still. I think we can all agree. But what it is is it's exciting it's engrossing it's unpredictable and and sport at its heart needs to be entertaining and it needs to be unpredictable there needs to be emotion and there needs to be drama and and south american football has all of those in, in spades so how would you describe the main failings of argentina here at the world cup the main feelings now is, is, is disappointment yeah. and hurt um i've written about two thousand words on this today um which is how they got to this point and really it's it's decades of corruption and mismanagement it's Julio Grandona who stole basically tens of, of millions of dollars at least if not hundreds of millions of dollars we we, d- we have no clue how much money he right. took um, in that the D- US Department of Justice case uh, one person is admitted to channeling 25 million dollars worth of bribes to him and he only worked with Grandona from 2010 onwards wow. and that's one guy yeah on working on one client so it does make you wonder how rich this guy was. Um, but that's money that should have gone into the Argentine system. That's money that could be developing young players. They don't have a system for developing young players. The reason that, that one of the reasons this squad is so frustrated with the Argentine Football Association is because they get kind of dragged around the world on these friendly tours. They played mm-hmm. friendlies in, in Melbourne against Brazil, in Australia. They played friendlies in Bangladesh, in India. Um, before the tournament they were supposed to play Nicaragua which got cancelled because of political reasons they were supposed to play Israel which got cancelled because the players wouldn't go for political reasons mm. these things don't happen if you're in a well run association that isn't desperate for money one of the reasons they're desperate for money is because of all the corruption that's gone before and, and as I said like the this squad here of the 20 Argentine players that took to the field for any minutes um, I think it was uh, seven of them played in the under 20 World Cup winning squad in 2007 so that's 11 years ago mm. Argentina have taken p- part in three under 20 World Cups since and only two players from those three squads mm. were in this were in this current World Cup squad so what does that tell you it tells you that the pipeline dried up and it stopped and the pipeline's broken and they do still uh, kind of develop young not develop young players they produce young players of, qu- of great quality like Paolo Dybala but that is an accident that is because they're from a, a football loving country that uh, just happens to have this uh, insane level of talent but do they develop them? no they all leave the country as soon as possible Lionel Messi obviously is the greatest export and he left the country at 13 Dybala Icardi all these guys you've seen them leave younger and younger and younger um, the domestic football there is, is in ruin I think the future is is bleak for them because they haven't got Messi to paper over the cracks anymore and um, you can read all, all about it in that piece but it's uh, a huge huge issue that is only going to come to the fore now and I don't know what they're going to look like in 2022 you've also lived in Spain yeah uh, and covered the sport there you've had some pretty good gigs over the years yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah you know it's better to be lucky than to be good uh, and I've been very lucky so far um, Spain is out as well and I ask myself, it's one of the stranger games I've seen at a World Cup against Russia where Spain's so dominant in possession but really didn't create many chances at all and set themselves up be- with their sort of lack of urgency to go down on penalties. Did you have the feeling that... I, I-, I kind of felt they were caught between two generations. Um, 
Hierro went with Isco and dropped Iniesta for this game. And it was looking towards kind of, we want Isco to be the star. And I think the Madrid-based press certainly was trying to push Isco as this is his tournament. He's going to show he's a world-class superstar and all these sorts of things. But that's been a Madrid thing for a while. And, and we're yet to see consistent greatness from this guy. And we have seen consistent greatness from players like Iniesta. Right. It, I felt that playing him alongside uh, Busquets and Silva meant that they were mixing the two and, and the two generations didn't quite mesh. Lopetegui, who was obviously the coach until literally a day before the, the <laughs> tournament starts, was the under-21 coach who loved, Tiago, uh, loved Isco and Thiago and Koke and Saul and this next generation of midfielders. And I think if you were going to try and build the team around Isco, you needed to have the younger core in there that, who will get it. They all work with each other. They all know. Because this was kind of reminiscent of the 2010 Spain in the way that they kept the ball. It was utter dominance, like 80% possession against yeah. the Russians. But what they didn't have was the like what they call in Spanish the verticality, the, the, the drive forward. And, and in the end, it was almost like a cowardice from Spain. I was incredibly disappointed because... You know, uh, if you're talking like NBA, trust the process, right? And Spain believe in their process, and their process is we will dominate teams in possession. We will pass them to death. And what's going to happen? But the reason for the dominance of possession and the passing it side to side is you wait for a gap to open up and you drive through it. At some point, you know, it's slow, 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 quick. Right. At some point, it's left, 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 right, left, right, left, right, left, right, forward. And they never did the forward thing, they never did the quick thing. It was just slow, it was sterile. And no one was moving. No, it, it, it was uh, the, the immobility of it. Uh, we were watching it, and it was the 67th minute. If you want to go back and watch it, there was a, a three-minute period where Russia didn't touch the ball, and the ball went side to side from left to right three or four times, and no one moved. You could see the perfect formation, the 4-3-3. It's like, that's great, but there's no, there's no spark. There's no creativity. And when you trust the process, you have to trust that you're, you're a dominant team. You're the better team. And to make that count, you have to try and win the game. Because if you're getting all the ball like that, you've probably got a 70 or 80% chance of winning the match, right? Mm. If you let it go to penalties, you've probably got, on technique, a 55 to 45% chance. So you have to win it in those two hours. And as the time ticked down and they brought on players who I felt were kind of more out the system, like Aspas and Rodrigo, they looked better. But they left it too late. And they, I really just don't think they ever cranked it up to 11. They didn't get aggressive enough. They didn't try different things and and in the end that that kind of the cautiousness and the lack of new ideas probably is summed up by the hiring of Hierro to replace Lopetegui when maybe they could have gone with Saladis or someone else but ultimately just such a disappointing tournament for Spain do you think Lopetegui would have coached this game differently yes. than Hierro did no doubt no doubt in my mind I think uh, pre-tournament uh, we were saying on our podcast the indie football podcast that the big thing they're going to lose with Hierro is Hierro is much more conservative than Lopetegui um, and Lopetegui is better at the in-game read and the in-game tweaks um, they effectively had a suit you know Hierro was the director of football mm. if Southgate had quit before the tournament would England have given Dan Ashworth the job no they would have hired a coach underneath Lopetegui right and that would have been the natural move for Spain as well but they didn't they went from upstairs instead of from downstairs which I thought was peculiar Lopetegui I think would have made better changes he had more faith in the youth in that team and Hiero clearly didn't. Hiero brought on Rodrigo after I think 107 minutes uh, and Rodrigo immediately was, was far more dangerous than Diego Costa had been in yeah. the entire game. So I think it, it was a loss. Um, I don't think they should have sacked him. 
Uh, I know lots of people disagree, um, and I can see both sides to that. Uh, but I, I really think, and it, it'll never get reported this way fully in Madrid because of the way the press works there. But Florentino Perez played a huge part in, sure. in Spain's downfall this month. Yeah, and I think it's possible to feel that Real Madrid was not a good actor in this situation, but also Spain didn't need to fire Lopetegui. I appreciate that, like, so if Real Madrid had gone through an entire month of this tournament with no coach, like, people would be losing their minds in Spain. <laughs> like, that's how it works. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, if people don't understand, uh, for people who, who don't maybe understand the Spanish media, uh, there are four major sports newspapers that go out every day in Spain, which is That's incredible. very unique, isn't yeah. it? And, and there are two in Madrid and two in Barcelona, essentially, and they're very partisan towards uh, the clubs from their city. And um, they have pages to fill every day. So every single day, you're going to get at least 10 or 11 pages of Real Madrid on like a normal Tuesday at any time of the year. Um, so if Real Madrid did not have a coach, it's not the sort of thing that gets swept under the carpet. <laughs> Real Madrid don't have a coach for a month like people are going to be losing their minds so they had to hire someone and Lopetegui was 6th or 7th choice that's fine but they offer him the job and if you look at Lopetegui's record it's probably the best club job he's ever going to get Yeah, it's the biggest club in the world probably if not definitely um, he failed at Porto he has to take this job the, the thing that was bad was the communication and also like this weird kind of and it's very kind of a, a Latin instinct is, is oh no like it's an affront to us that he's taken this job a day before the World Cup it's like well no he's still like he still wants to win the World Cup you know <laughs> this doesn't change his motivation to win the World Cup um, I th- there would have been obvious issues with like, perhaps the dynamic with like Real Madrid Barcelona within the squad but mo- most of the squad I've talked to like some of the players in there most of the squad wanted Lobotegui to stay right and I think you've got to listen to those guys, not the guys at the top in the suits. And treat them like pros. They're not babies. Yeah. And, and Lopetegui is a professional. Yeah. He's a professional who's been responsible for the immense success of the Spanish youth system. And what you've suddenly decided is, despite knowing his character inside out, despite knowing him for a decade or longer, you've suddenly decided he's not a man that we want working for us. He's not a professional who wants the best for us. It's like, why would he not want to win the World Cup? Why would he not want to leave on the best possible note and and I just think you know that sacking your coach is going to on the eve of the tournament is going to damage your hopes of, of winning right. it and that's what you're here to do yeah. so uh, you know it's as simple as that yeah and it did make a difference in the end um, clearly from what we saw on the field I, I want to wrap up by talking a little bit about your affinity quite clearly from our lunch discussion before this for US sports yeah um you seem to be very interested in like the NFL and, and other U.S. sports. I love. I mean, I love the NFL. Uh, I think, you know, especially like this last this last season. Really, kind of this last season, I felt like I preferred NFL to to what you guys would call soccer. And it's just <laughs> um, the competitive parity of the league. I think is such an important thing. Um, I love that you have the the finite amount of resources, like the salary cap, and it's how you maximize that. You know. Uh, the draft I, I get very deep into the draft like this year when the Giants took Saquon Barkley at two I was just like just outraged how on earth like you, how do you take you, you never take a running back second overall like just trade out the pick or just realize that Eli's, Eli Manning is absolutely spent and just get a new quarterback what you don't and like also in the in like the greatest quarterback class probably for years like there are five first round guys here and you could you could trade down 
get a bucket load of picks to like sort yourself out for years, get Lamar Jackson at the end of the first round, and instead you take a running back who are like on average pay are only above punters and kickers and you take him second overall you make him the highest paid running back in the league like things like that that's just one example and and i uh yeah i just you know i just think it's it's great it's great for uh london that we're going to get an nfl team in 2022 and i know that's not official but i've talked to enough people that know stuff that it is going to happen yeah. and that will be huge for the league it'll be huge for london uh, there are still questions talking to people inside the nfl about it they've you know they've done the research as you'd expect for a, a company of that size there's only one question is is can a team stay competitive in yeah. london can they attract free agents i think is is the question because obviously with the draft and trades and stuff lots of players don't have a say in where they're going to go but can you attract free agents to london um i'd rather live in london than cleveland by the way yeah no i mean i see that but <laughs> Uh, you know, you're, you've got a different background to lots of these NFL players. I think that there is, uh, it's going to be a huge culture shock for a lot of some of these guys. Uh. Um, if you're, you know, if you grow up, uh, so like, for example, you just watch Hard Knocks, right? Like uh, last year's one, the Buccaneers are on it. And you look at where Jameis Winston grew up and you look at where Jameis Winston grew up. And that is, that is thousands of miles literally from from london and it's a million miles culturally from from london and i do kind of feel like if you you've got a rookie maybe who grew up in a tough part of louisiana or or tennessee and then he's transplanted to Hampstead in north london it's like how's he going to cope because (laughs) it's an it's an immense it's an immense shift um that's going to be difficult to to get over but uh i think it'll be It'd certainly be great for everyone living in London. It'll be great for the NFL to expand its horizons like that. And, you know, I think um, the, the more I, I learn about US sports, you know, I'm, I've always enjoyed NHL. I, lo- I love ice hockey. I think it's actually the most natural fit if you're a football fan, like a soccer fan. Yeah. Um, the speed of the game. I think sports uh, are better when it's hard to score. Uh, kind of, it's a, mm-hmm. a little theory I have. Um, baseball I enjoy for the same reason I enjoy cricket you get to sit around all day drinking yeah Um, you know it's it's a a very fun social sport like whenever I'm I'm over with my in-laws like go and watch the Cubs uh, who are now good for the first time in in like forever which is great and and, you know every American sport has this sort of cyclical nature because of the, the the salary caps and because of the franchise nature is it's the unpredictability of sport and it's what we were saying earlier on about the, the Libertadores right. in, in football and whatever is you want your sport to be uh, dramatic you want to feel emotion you want to kind of know that there's hope everyone needs hope and it, I support a, a football team Crystal Palace who we know what our ceiling is every season it's like right. the be- if we had our best season we could probably finish like 8th in the Premier League yeah and if we have a bad season, we're getting relegated. And that's fine because I've watched us for years in the, in the championship and that's great. But uh, modern football in, in England is getting very, and Europe is getting hyper corporate. You know, the big, the richer are getting richer. It's, it's like society. The, the rich are getting richer. Right. The elite are just cornering more money for themselves. The Premier League agreed to it a couple of weeks ago where the bigger clubs are going to get a larger share of international TV revenue. That is not going to stop. You know, they don't decide they have enough money and go like, oh, that'll do. When has a rich person ever said, no, I've got enough money? That, you know, apart from maybe Bill Gates, <laughs> who's like the one example in the world. 
and and that's happening in in sport in Europe is the biggest football teams are getting richer and richer and competition is no longer the priority and when you're embedded in that on a daily basis like like I am um, which I'm fortunate and unfortunate at times to be embedded in American sports for me is like a release Hmm. it's like I can watch NFL and yeah I know the Jets are going to be terrible but oh wait they just got Sam Darnold and (laughs) this whole thing can turn around like the Bears so the Bears are my team and uh, they can win four games one year and they get the new coach Trubisky might pop you've got um, uh, what's his name Al- um, Alan Robinson's come in Taylor Gabriel's in there uh, they've got the second round receiver Anthony Miller Tariq Cohen's like a little live wire I love watching Jordan Howard they've got Roquan Smith in the first round so it's like whoa 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 this could be a team yeah and that's one season it's that one turnaround and so sometimes uh, you need to have like the hope of something unexpected and you know, the Eagles winning the Super Bowl is, is the ultimate proof of that well, just as there are probably more savvy soccer fans now in the U.S. than maybe even people realize, there are more savvy NFL fans in the U.K. than people realize. Oh, for sure. I mean, Gareth Southgate. Uh, Gareth Southgate, uh, a lot's been made of uh, how he's learned from other sports in this tournament, right? But he went over to the Super Bowl in uh, February. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark Chapman, who presents the BBC coverage over here, huge NFL fan. Um, mm-hmm. There are loads of guys, especially in, in sports media, I think. It helps if you're a sports fan. Yeah. And you just need to have open eyes to these things. Um, but as soon as you've kind of really, you get NFL and you watch it, I sent my chief sports writer to uh, one of the NFL games in London, mm. uh, Jonathan Liu, who yeah. you, you must have read his stuff. And, and he's, he's a terrific writer. Like He's just an incredibly talented writer, but he knows nothing about NFL. I said, look, just go to a game. I talk to the NFL guys. I'll, they'll give you all access. You can talk to whoever you want and just write about what you see. And what he wrote was a, was a brilliant piece that looks at the sport from a different angle to anything I've even thought of about mm. a sport which is about the hyper-specialization of everything. It's You have defensive backs coaches and running backs coaches and everyone has their own individual thing. And it's all these guys are the absolute elite athletes in like every position. It's like, right, nose tackle, what do you want? Right, I want six foot seven, 300 pounds. Okay, we'll get six, hundred, six foot seven, 300 pound guys who can run like a, a five second 40. <laughs> it's incredible, really. It's like the transformers brought into sport. And uh, I think when people realize like how interesting some of these US sports are, they're kind of in the UK, especially, we're opening up to it. We've got the TV rights now. You've got the access that we never had before with terrestrial television. Now with yeah. satellite and and the breadth of coverage and the internet, I guess, that we can read the American coverage. Like, you know, I mainly read American NFL coverage, obviously, because it's, it's better than what we have. There are a lot of savvy fans in the UK who want more, mm-hmm. and it's the same in America. There are lots of savvy soccer fans who I, I feel like they deserve like a really in-depth coverage of, of the great sport, you know? Yeah. And, and they're going to get it increasingly. It feels like the television networks and, and with the World Cup coming, I guess, every digital media out there is going to have to improve their soccer output. And that's only, that's only great for the fans and, and it's great for people like you as well. Yeah. No, I mean, it's been fascinating for me to follow being at Sports Illustrated since 1996, the path that the sport of soccer football has taken in ways that I wouldn't have even necessarily predicted, uh, didn't necessarily think it was inevitable it would get to this point in the u.s so with the world cup coming in 26 uh i really do think that's an opportunity to take all this growth that we've seen in soccer and and actually take it to a new level um but uh 
thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Where can people find you on social media? Um, yeah, just uh, on Twitter, E-A-A, Malian, M-A-L-Y-O-N. Um, and our, all of our work is at Indie Football and uh, independent.co.uk slash football. And it's just, uh, you know, it's been a wild World Cup, but the guys are producing some great stuff and it's uh, hopefully going to get better, you know, especially if England can continue doing what they're doing. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me. No, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football World Cup Daily Podcast. I'd like to thank Brian Strauss and Ed Malian, as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, like, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. It really does help the cause if you do, and we'll see you tomorrow. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.